0: east.co My special thanks go out to Wellington Management for sponsoring this mini series, Sustainable Investing: The Next Frontier. Wellington Management serves as an asset manager and trusted advisor to clients representing more than 1 trillion dollars in assets worldwide. Wellington has explored long-term sustainability issues since the 1970s and continues this practice today through internal research, engagement, and its innovative climate research initiative with top-ranked think tank Woods Hole Research Center. Wellington's investors strive to assess investments holistically through the triangulation of insights across equity, fixed income, and ESG research. The firm's sustainable investing practice also features market-leading impact, stewardship, and climate capabilities. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation, through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting CapitalAllocatorsPodcast.com. In January, James Aitken told me, It doesn't matter what you think about ESG. The clamor will only increase. Fund flows will accelerate. And, and we need to set our cynicism aside and be mindful of the consequences. It's going to be with us for a long time to come. Ever since, I've grown increasingly curious about the megatrend of sustainable investing. Climate change dominated the discussion at Davos a few weeks after, and social issues about the treatment of workers are front and center since the onset of COVID-19. This mini-series, Sustainable Investing, The Next Frontier, is my effort to learn alongside you through conversations with serious, passionate practitioners in the field. For the next month, you'll hear conversations twice a week in a familiar style and format, all focused on this important investment area. My guest on the ninth episode of Sustainable Investing The Next Frontier is Ruben Munger, the managing partner of Vision Ridge Capital a private investment firm with over a billion dollars in assets that focuses on sustainable real assets. Rubin started Vision Ridge in 2008 after a decade of value investing experience at the Baupost Group. Our conversation discusses Rubin's path and his approach to sustainable real asset investing in the private markets. We talk about his time at Baupost, Transition from broad public market investing to focused venture impact investing personally and the creation of Vision Ridge alongside Jeremy Grantham and Capricorn Investment Group. We then discuss Vision Ridge's flexible investment strategy, creative structuring, portfolio construction, opportunities in power and mobility, competitive dynamics, team and outlook. As we round out the roster of managers on Sustainable Investing The Next Frontier, Ruben once again exemplifies the impressive quality of serious practitioners in this space. Stay tuned for the last episode of the miniseries on Thursday with Hiro Mizuno, the person who has moved the most money towards sustainable investments in the world. Before we get going, I wanted to let you know that we've added behind-the-episode email to our premium content. Each week, we'll let you know the backstory of the episode, key takeaways, favorite quotes, and what's coming up on the show. You can subscribe to our premium membership at CapitalAllocatorsPodcast.com slash subscription signup, or click the button at the top of the homepage. Thanks so much for your support. Please enjoy my conversation with Ruben Munger on the ninth episode of Sustainable Investing, The Next Frontier. Ruben, great to see you. Absolutely, Ted. Great to see you too. Well, why don't we start as I always love to do with your background. How did you first get interested in investing? I
1: grew up the son of teachers and the grandson of teachers, so education was really important. First real exposure to stocks was in in high school. Had a math teacher, freshman and senior year, great guy, and he made us do the stock market game. So freshman year, we thought we were really smart. We were going to buy the most expensive stocks possible. Turns out that was Berkshire and Capital City, so I just wish I had bought them and held them. But by senior year, we realized that the game was driven by percent gains. And so back then, a tick was an eighth. And so if you bought a stock that traded for 75 cents, one tick overnight would effectively one buyer move your percentage a ton. So we sort of started gaming it then. And, and that was the beginning. I went to college, uh, liberal arts school, Washington University, a long way from where I grew up in California, culturally and, and otherwise. But from there was lucky had an alum that reached down and, and interviewed a couple of kids and joined Wolfenson, the MA investment boutique. And then in the late 90s, I wanted to move from banking into investing. And there was a firm called Bowpost that was running a search, and they said, Oh, you probably haven't heard of them. They have about a billion dollars. And it turns out the PM gives you a call for your introductory half-hour interview. And so, you know, had a phone call with Seth Garman then. And Ended up going up to Boston, having the most interesting three and a half hour interview of my life. And I walked out and said to my girlfriend at the time, I'm not getting this job, but man, I learned more than I ever have. I guess I did well enough to get one more shot. Had another good conversation and learned about things like Dutch auctions and Polish holding companies and all kinds of great stuff. Uh, So I joined BowPost and proceeded to spend a decade there, effectively going from a billion dollars to $12 billion. But That was a period where we started by calling European companies up and asking them to mail us the annual report and translating it to English. And so sort of there was a window of advantage that's very, very different than there is now. But that was kind of the beginning of my investing journey.
0: And so as you got towards the end of that period of time, what was on your mind when you decided to leave? Seth
1: set a great example of how to engage in a community and and think about being more than just sitting at a desk and making money for yourself and for your investors And so I had begun reading works of Amory Lovins and others that really had me thinking about how does the world function with 10 billion people and how do we deal with kind of a more sustainable future and sat with a choice of sitting and staying where I was and being able to probably give money to causes or jumping in. And so I rolled up my sleeves, left effectively in the first two months of 2008, not knowing what was around the corner, but Really feeling like the question and opportunity of figuring that out was rooted in the capital markets. You needed capital markets in order to solve transportation and power and these big, chunky industries that were at the heart of our resource constraints. And so I began a journey of of spending all of my time working on those questions.
0: And how did that evolve from your first step away and what did you do at that point? So-
1: Everything is incremental in terms of actually having the time to learn how this functions. The good and bad of being a, an investment generalist is you know a lot about a little until you need to know a lot about something specific. And so you know, sort of taking that framework, it was time to dive in on a whole bunch of systems and situations that I hadn't spent a lot of time thinking about. I knew there were problems, but I then worked closely with a handful of nonprofits. They were always eager to engage with with someone who wanted to learn more and, and work with them so I spent time doing that and investing a bit from my own balance sheet and diving in with a number of emerging companies and startups I so sort of spent four years you know as I put it getting smart and ultimately began to see more and more opportunities that weren't just interesting intellectually or felt like they could make change but that were compelling investments aligned with this transformation and transition and that really, started lighting up our inboxes in 2011, 2012.
0: So as you circle back to that initial period of time after you left, what are the core skills that you had that transferred over when you started looking at these more nascent development companies?
1: The frameworks that mattered were hardest then, right? Sort of nascent companies are tricky. That universe is all about management teams that are able to scale and grow and build something that may not be there yet and kind of create a future. Whereas particularly public investing, by the time you've gone public, the something is there. And so I think part of it was learning how those people dynamics work. There are commonalities in finding inefficiency between being a deep value investor and being a venture capitalist, but the ways and methods to realizing outcomes is completely different. And so spent a bunch of time learning about the difference and also learning about the things that I'm good at it and I'm not as good at. Where finding the thing that could be amazing is the opposite of making sure you don't lose money, right? Sort of venture capital portfolios and value investing portfolios have the opposite skews. I grew up learning that you'll do well if you never lose any money. And if you take that approach to venture, you definitely won't succeed. And so it came to a point in 2012 where there was both a question of what are you good at? And then also, what does the world need? And- It seemed at that point that you needed one of two things. You either needed deep technology and you needed scientists. And I would credit Bill Gates and the Breakthrough Institute and Breakthrough Energy, his his venture capital firm that he started around that period of time, as saying, look, we can make these big, hairy scientific bets, and they've hired some of the best scientists in the country. Or you can now deploy and scale things that aren't suddenly in the money and make sense to build and grow and just need to roll up your sleeves and do the work and figure out through structure and other things how to make the investments pencil. And that obviously tied back to my background and what I'd spent my time doing.
0: And so you roll through a few years of doing this on your own in that process of discovery, what you enjoy and, and where the skill set is. You mentioned having capital and scale. So at what point in time did you decide that you wanted to go past just investing and working with nonprofits on your own?
1: that was sort of a major decision in, in life in many ways, right? Going back to managing money for others is a very different undertaking than what I would call self-exploration. But the process had led to finding fellow travelers and particularly had been working with the Capricorn Investment Group, which is Jeff School's family office, and then Jeremy Grantham and his foundation. And What was clear is that none of the three of us had the scale to pursue the things that we were seeing. And we had a a high level of alignment on what the investment opportunity looked like and how best to pursue it. That really catalyzed coming together and establishing Vision Ridge in the way that it is now. So I had two people with me in my office, but brought over the person who ran Real Assets at Capricorn. He joined Vision Ridge. And we kind of accelerated from what was then a three-person team to the 13 investment professionals and kind of a fully established firm that we are today.
0: So what was that framework that you set upon that the three entities together coming together would pursue? So we set up our first vehicle, we called it a sustainable asset fund. And
1: the key aspects of how we approach the world is saying that sustainable assets are the same thing as real assets. That there's sort of a fundamental architecture of infrastructure that Delivers electricity, it delivers transportation, it gives us our food, it gives us our water. But the big shift that was taking place was that there's sort of this secular and structural tailwind that is going to really cause transition over time. And so our basic shared philosophy was that you had the opportunity to buy real assets and physical, tangible things that provided real principal protection. And yet, the tailwind was going to allow you to earn outsized returns to the extent that you're right. And so it's sort of a deep value biased portfolio skew and investment skew that we were then seeing time and again in multiple different transactions and opportunities.
0: As you started thinking about sourcing opportunities and looking at your filter, were you looking at cheap existing cash flows? Or you also mentioned in this transition, you might have things that aren't driving positive economics today, but clearly with that tailwind, we'll get there as cost structures come down.
1: It's really important to us not to get boxed into a single lens. I think the defining characteristic is, can you invest with the structural opportunity and framework? Growing up, the idea that there was debt and there was equity or different approaches to what an investment was, wasn't really the right framework. It's what are the underlying opportunities how do you best structure them to capture those things? And so we've been willing to be a debt investor. We're willing to be an equity investor. We've owned straight project capital and we've owned companies. What that's meant is, to get to your actual question, is we've started building things with management teams where there's really just an asset. So we've gone in and been construction capital building solar projects on Cape Cod because Massachusetts had an interesting regulatory regime that people had not really dug in and figured out. But we've also bought full-blown companies where they were a mixture of assets and opportunities that we felt like the underlying assets could be transformed by and with the management team that existed. So we try not to be biased one way or the other, but often, in some cases, it's valuable to come without the baggage of history and an existing platform, and in others, It's that very history and existing platform that allows you to transition.
0: So when you have that concept of not wanting to be pigeonholed, how do you go about finding the opportunities?
1: The lack of pigeonhole is part of how you differentiate yourself in a competitive market. Some of the other investors who we respect a lot are stuck as project financiers or debt investors or equity investors. And so they'll spend a lot of time trying to convince a management team to adopt to their structural limitations. And we try to spend a lot of time with a management team to find alignment. And so that really opens up what you can do once you find things you like. It doesn't mean it always fits, but we talk a lot about finding someone who likes our flavor of capital. Because it is flexible, it's not overarchingly flexible, but we then take that structural investment approach and apply it across a set of themes and There are a couple of benefits from being in this for over a decade is the early warriors, let's say, have a deep and abiding bond. And so the network has been growing every day, but at the same time, the old network is but very, very tight and always open for a phone call. And and because you've sort of been through two or three cycles of complexity and challenge, whether it's at the firm level, whether it's an investment you have, there's just sort of a lot of shared journey. And so the quality of that early network is really powerful and then as you've worked in certain areas over time you build a level of expertise that lets you really add value without being tried you can actually add value to things because you may be alongside of or ahead of some of the companies that you're potentially partnering with to buy an asset or to build a business
0: what are those themes that are most attractive to you sure so i mean i think the
1: the powerful ones within and they're they're somewhat obvious, but the powerful ones within electricity are declining costs of renewables. So renewables have just been on this inexorable decline in cost. And the question becomes not, is that a good thing? It's how do you position your investments to benefit from that rather than be compressed? That whole chain doesn't make that much return on a gross basis anymore. It's wonderful for the world that solar projects can yield or get capitalized at a 7% on levered return, but that also means the returns are too low for us. And so how do you position yourself against that theme? And that's been an important part of of what we do in electricity. Then the decline curve in in lithium ion batteries applies to both electricity and mobility. So we are involved in grid-oriented storage, and maybe we'll come back to it, but that's enabled by dropping costs of batteries. And that same thing makes a huge difference in mobility and transportation, where A battery that used to cost $1,000 a kilowatt hour is breaking $100 a kilowatt hour. And so things are increasingly in the money. And so I think in both power and mobility, that's the, the defining theme is that more and more things are economically in the money. This isn't a question of regulations or subsidies. It's just pure economics. And then where and how does the structure and situation at hand create an investment opportunity?
0: As you go through each of those, and you just start with electricity, where did you find on the value chain that you can kind of extract higher returns? So it's an evolving path. I mentioned Cape Cod. In 2013,
1: out of 100 power investors, 80 of them weren't looking at solar, and so now you're at 20. And then of those 20, 15 of them had decided that state renewable energy credits were a bad, bad thing. They'd failed in Connecticut and New Jersey. They'd caused sort of a boom-bust cycle. But Massachusetts had rolled out its own program, but suddenly evaluating and underwriting that program was something only five out of the original hundred were doing. And so it was very reminiscent of bowpost approaches where we once owned the all SEC portfolio, meaning not a football thing, but a under investigation thing, because effectively, if you're under investigation, most investors turn away. And so, you know, how do you get an edge? How are you able to look at things that others aren't? And so it started as simply as looking in Massachusetts. We then went to Japan after Fukushima and You had that opportunity to bring expertise built in other markets to the Japanese market. And so they had early stage developers, but not people who knew how to bring projects across the finish line and and make a difference. And now we have an energy storage platform that's building batteries. And it's a very similar playbook and framework of understanding what makes the market function, working with companies to be an early buyer of the product. It's not a new technology. We don't like technology risk. LG Chem has sold billions of dollars of batteries, but that doesn't mean that someone has put a battery into New York State to do this specific application. And so you have to work through with the regulator and and contractors and all those things, and you effectively get paid for
0: doing that work. And how about on the batteries in the power grid?
1: Well, that was effectively where I was going, is that solar had come to the power grid. And we had been looking at utility-oriented energy storage for three or four years, found a team that we really liked, they were were very smart, three guys backed by a, a great group of angels. And then the question becomes when and how are they ready for us? And so we spent a year almost working with them and showing them how we're going to operate and why we can grow the pie with them. But right? you don't want to compete purely on cost of capital. You want them to understand that we're going to move quickly and, and understand the markets that they're building in. And as soon as it was time to start construction on their first asset, we came in and, and paid to build that asset and have grown that team from 3 people to 30 plus people. We did four different smaller assets. One of those as an example was a test of an idea that we had. The idea worked in the market and we now have are expanding that 10x over the next 12 months where you're able to get contracts that people hadn't realized you could get contracts for and by being an early mover engage with these markets in a way that creates specific high return value that if you're not diving into the market with a good team you aren't going to identify.
0: How did you kind of dance with them over that time? So
1: the process, and this isn't just for them, I would almost generalize it, but they thought their project was ready sooner than it was. And so you begin by underwriting the project as they think it is. And often it takes a bit longer for projects to develop and get to that point where it's construction ready. And so the key is to drive toward a result or alignment of here's how we work. And in then jointly working through how that asset is going to be underwritten, show your ability to add value to their own analysis. And then as they hit a bump in the road, that kind of flexibility and understanding, it's particularly easy when you haven't written a check yet, but using and showing how, yeah, that bump in the road is something we've seen before. That bump in the road is going to probably work out this way. Let's all call this person. And using some of those same resources that we've built up over time to start to help them, you narrow the competitive playing dynamic over time. I think someone came in late and tried to take that deal, but ultimately you've built up a relationship over a year.
0: When you refer to sort of the way we work, are you taking that financial analyst lens and saying, okay, we're modeling this out. We're looking at certain required rates of return. Or what is it about the way that we work that might be different from others?
1: I think some of it goes to that structural question. We are able to offer a couple of different approaches to providing capital. And so a management team may say, hey, I want you to finance each of my projects. But then they realize they need capital at TopCo or the developer. And so once you start to get into the push and pull of who pays for the team, how do they pay for it, Having been around the block and seen things that work and don't work, allows you to help them on that journey where you say, look, here is what we need. We need to be able to get access to the assets. If things aren't working, with all due respect to you, we need to be able to get our hands on those and protect our capital. At the same time, you believe in yourself and we believe in you. And therefore, how can you earn the kind of personal and team upside that you think fits with executing on your value proposition? and they're sort of our inherent biases and people who are willing to be developers and executives. While the tailwind is there, they're pushing against most traditional energy systems and traditional ways that the business world operates. And so they have an innate optimism. And so you know, we're able to usually find really good alignment between our goals for returns and their goals for returns.
0: As you've been pursuing this, what are some of the bumps in the road that you've come across after making investments? I alluded to one, which is
1: assuming that a developer is going to be able to you know, continue to say stay as solvent as they think they will be just doing your project. So you can be capital protected buying a project at construction ready, is one of the places we like to invest because often construction risk is well known. We don't want to wait and know whether you'll get your interconnection or whether you'll get a permit or, you know, those things are much either binary or harder to control versus having a construction company show up and build the thing they've built five times is relatively easy to underwrite. But usually delays show up and a developer runs out of money when they would have thought that they were going to be fine. And so we've, we're have we increasingly trying to just avoid getting into that conversation, having been through it a few times, which says, you know, now we need to bail out our partner. And that creates an uncomfortable discussion. So it's better to sort of sort it out so you're aligned upfront. I think that's probably been the most frequent issue. And then figuring out the right platforms to scale. We had a couple of things in fund one where the uh, the financial opportunity didn't scale as quickly as we hoped. And so while interesting project level returns, you don't get the kind of operating leverage that is required to do really well.
0: As you've built out across these funds, how have you invested both across the different thematic categories And then also across the different stages of development of either the business or the projects.
1: We've ended up relatively diversified across agriculture, water, power, and mobility in both of our funds. It seems intentional, but it's also a mixture of how we source and wanting diversity. And so when you're looking at a broad array of things, you're going to end up with a broader array of things. And we also are try to apply our uh, kind of a best return framework to things. So we're not going to just keep pounding out solar deals, even if returns are compressing. And so that flexibility gives us that diversity of portfolio construction, just because our focus is on a broad, attractive set of best returns within what we look at. We then have ended up with a mixture of a few really good platforms where that first investment is a $10 million project, but it turns into 100, 120, 150 million dollars of projects relatively quickly. What's really nice about those things is you're able to build a team and build expertise, and you have increasing confidence. And if it's not happening, you're able to keep it relatively small. We have a couple of things that are, are 10 or 20 million dollars in in fund one in total, whereas the best things are three or four times that. And so you're able to really create some nice portfolio skew with things that you like. At the same time, you know, were in the middle of buying a business in Scandinavia, in Norway, that has operated for years. It's an existing traditional business, but it's undergoing a transformation as, in that case, ferries electrify. And so finding the best operator who is then leading this transformation is the way that makes the most sense. And in that case, you know the management team is really good at making sure that the vessels go back and forth and crewing it and doing all those things. What they weren't as good at is understanding how charging systems work and how does that interface with the utility and what's the right way to bid and underwrite in a competitive dynamic in this new world. How do you kind of work through some of those issues? And we had owned the largest electric vehicle fast charging network here in the US other than Tesla. And so we were comfortable with a lot of those same things. And it allowed us to quickly build an affinity with the family who continues to be our partner.
0: As you look at the market opportunities across these kind of sub-verticals today, where are you seeing sort of the most attractive opportunities?
1: Our playbook doesn't really change other than this sort of COVID window has created a fair amount of financing uncertainty. And so, whereas we haven't been looking at solar, for example, in particular depth in the United States for a few years, We've seen three or four things that I would call distressed renewables come into the the office. I'm not sure we'll do any right now, but that's the biggest change in the last few months where things that were previously pretty easy to understand are coming back just because someone is not able to step through and fund what they were planning to do. Otherwise, it's that same theme. How are batteries going to drive change? Mobility is a little bit disrupted right now, but I think there's a lot coming in that technology interface between vehicles, the electricity grid and charging infrastructure. And we really like that sector. We continue to really like where and how renewables can play out on the grid and and how to deliver that lower cost green architecture. We have a business that's helping cooperatives get off of traditional coal partners. And so you go in with a simple proposition, I'm going to make it cheaper, greener and local. And it carries a lot of weight. And so, you know, those are things that are pretty easy to want to get behind. And and I think that trend is powerful and and longstanding. The question is just which of the 1300 utilities in the U.S. is going to manifest it at any given time. And so that's a long list to just continue to chip away and, and move through.
0: The cheaper, greener, lower cost is easier in some sense than the uncertainty about say autonomous vehicles. We know that trend's happening. Where do you think the mobility curve looks like maybe five years from now? So
1: you've thrown out two differences
0: of things that we
1: are willing to invest in today and things that we want to be cognizant of for tomorrow. So the transition towards electrification is a really easy one. It's a mathematical equation, but one that requires knowledge and nuance. What are the ways to optimize your power expenses? How is it more valuable to cite your charging station on this side of the street where you're in one utility versus across the street where you have a different utility. Those are things that are hugely economically important, but not that hard. When and how autonomy applies is much, much more complicated. And so when we think about assets we're building, how do you align with both trends? When we owned EVgo, we had partnered with NRG and we grew the asset base over two times, but you wanted to be (laughs) cognizant of where and how that
0: was going to make the most sense. What do the competitive dynamics look like for deals in this space?
1: It really depends on which sector. The power side, there are a lot of actors and many people are trying to get smarter about how to move on. Going back to energy storage, In the last three months, we've seen both energy capital partners and Blackstone make big moves. And that's sort of saying, okay, what are we doing here? This is not oil and gas. Oil and gas is suddenly a problem. How do we move into these sectors? There's a fair amount of activity in electricity. In mobility, there's sort of a huge tech side work, but there's much less experience outside of the technology and venture capital side. There are just less players who play within transportation. There are a series of big transportation companies but it's an evolving and shifting framework that intersects with low-cost finance, where the lease finance companies are, are able to operate you know, vehicles at 4%. And so what and how does that transition interface? And that's where you've seen some of these areas blend over. So when we sold EVgo to, to LS Power, right, it's the third example of bigger PE trying to figure out how these trends move. So they're an electricity-oriented firm that is
0: moving into mobility because of that interrelationship between power and driving. Do you find yourself purposely playing in that sort of mid space, knowing that you're going to have these bigger private equity firms to sell to? So we've seen our transaction size go up over time, partly because we have more capital, but also
1: because as more and more things are economic, the scope and scale of what you can do and still be at an attractive bite size. So we see bigger opportunities, but we also see this second point where the really big guys are starting to look and they can't reach all the way down. And so the midsize space, we start to bump up against them now that we're looking at certain situations that are well above $100 million. But that's kind of been the floor where you're just not going to see them come below it. And they still, I think, see value. If, if you want to put a billion dollars of equity into something, it's very hard to start at ten. And so we're willing to start at 10 or write a $100 million check and then go from there while they need to start with two or $300 million to start.
0: How did you come to wanting to focus more on private companies and projects compared to the public markets?
1: So this change, there are some great public companies that are part of the change, but it's actually a relatively nascent and complex world where finding teams and finding the people who are really going to dig in and do the work makes a huge amount of difference. I'll use Evigo again, bringing in a new management team there has led to an acceleration of that business's performance, its network performance, all of the key metrics as you went from 1.0 of the industry to 2.0 of the industry. So people that had grown up in that business between 2008 and 2015 are different than the people that are growing it now as it's gone 5X the size and it's going to 5X again. And so you really need to be able to roll up your sleeves and both figure out structure and find the right places to invest. Whereas NextEra is the biggest renewables owner in the United States. It also is regulated utility in Florida. And so how do you balance those two things? Their cost of capital is incredibly low. And so it's both a complicated ESG question and an inability to exercise outcomes in something that's this dynamic. And so a darling like Sun Edison can go from favored stock to bankrupt if you're not careful.
0: As you've sort of participated in this market over the last decade, where have you seen the players come and go effectively through past cycles before this last period of year, year and a half, where there's clearly a surge in interest? going all the way back to 2008, there was
1: sort of a a surge of interest. You had some really big allocations made. and, And the problem was everyone was betting on three things, cheap credit, high gas, and a carbon price. And it took about six to nine months for all three of those things to completely implode. And so there was then kind of a retrenchment phase where most people weren't looking. And they began to perk their heads up again, but you kind of bounce around with the oil cycle and other things. So energy investors in particular are going to bounce back and forth based on how they think about oil. It's almost like their capital flows into this sector are a derivative of the commodity to which their life is actually attached. And I think that's one of the really exciting things for us is their framework tends to not quite be the same as they think about risk and return and what has been the way they've made money is totally inconsistent with the way we think you can make money in these sectors. And so that's been the biggest sort of groups coming in and out based on whim. You also see the same thing in in corporations where the interest in electric vehicles goes up when gas prices go up and then gas prices go down and you see corporate programs sort of collapse versus over the last 18 months, you've also seen major sustained investments by the automakers that are of a scope and scale that mean it's not clear when the curve ramps in the small amount, but four years from now, since people aren't doing new engine programs, they're switching to electric.
0: So let's circle back a little bit to the structure of your team and the business. So you'd mentioned you started with your first fund and now you're on, I guess, fund two?
1: We are. We're well through investing of our second fund. And what does your team look like today? So we have 13 investors. There are three of us that are partners we've sort of worked together from the beginning in, in one way or another. I have a couple of principals that joined us right off the bat there. And then a group of VPs and senior associates that come out of that traditional mode. A bunch of them worked at oil and gas private equity firms or a utility group at a, at a bank or investment firm. And they kind of saw the writing on the wall and said, hey, I want to get onto this side of the ledger. But that gives us depth and firepower to look at most things that come in. And then we obviously have a full operations team.
0: How do you structure the effort of sourcing and diligence and deal-making?
1: We end up with areas of expertise, particularly at the partner level. I spend a lot of my time in mobility and electricity. My partner, Justin, spends his time in ag, water, and electricity. George spends a lot of time in waste. And immediately those start to dictate the kinds of deal flow that we see. And then within our team, we run that massive matrix of building optimum expertise, giving people the highest level of development, exposing them to lots of different teams. We have a New York office and a Colorado office. And so how do we make sure that that's cross-fertilized? So we have sort of all the traditional challenges of being in two offices, I guess now being in 15 home offices, but that effectively leads to ending up with a fair amount of broad depth and having touched most of the things we can find out there.
0: What changes have you seen, you know, both, I guess, in the way you're working and then maybe more importantly, in the companies that you're looking at through this period of time in the pandemic? We've liked that we're in real assets and that there are things that are inherently
1: defensive, but it's been particularly nice to have the kind of frameworks that we have where most of our focus is on operating activities and developed assets, as it were, or construction, which has often been a an allowed workforce, depending on the state that you're in. Obviously, face-to-face transactions slow down a little bit, but there are as many things that are accelerating a lot of the transitions and changes as challenges. So every team went through that cycle of, is every individual safe? Is every person safe? Okay, what's my budget look like? How am I going to make changes? And at this point, everyone is pretty much settling into kind of the new status quo. And that's running business development as it is figuring out new ideas executing on the existing asset base plowing ahead with business as usual and and then from our team and our process perspective it's the same thing other than a shift in both that higher marginal cost of capital even though the markets are very strong in our view the incremental bar is definitely higher because uncertainty is much much higher and then how you diligence we have something we'll probably close in the next month or so but we had already spent a lot of time with that team, given that I've already alluded to it, often takes six months to get something done. We spent a lot of months pre-pandemic with the team, and so once it switches to something where we haven't spent a lot of face time with a potential investment, it'll be a little
0: bit more interesting. When you set out to sort of build Vision Ridge, there's this concept, at least that I'm imagining, that you were investing in a certain way to just make money, and now you're in a space that has this bigger mission attached to it. How have you felt about the day-to-day difference?
1: If I just wanted to invest to make money, I don't know that I would have gone out and raised a bunch of third-party capital and taken on the obligation of working for others. We did that in part because we saw a profit opportunity, but more of a profit opportunity for them. So I think our whole genesis was from a, a position of impact It's why it's worth doing this, but not impacting a given micro investment, but rather felt pretty strongly that this was not a concessionary activity. This is actually hearkening back to my comments earlier about going to a small town in Europe to meet a CEO from a 500 million market cap company who doesn't talk to investors often and figuring out, wow, this is amazing, right? The level of work required is just different. And so now we're choosing to work on this because it actually creates opportunity and opportunity for really good returns and convincing other people that it does. So we see our mission as delivering on that market viewpoint to begin to convince more and more people that this is in fact the case. And then expanding effectively our investor base or the investors in the category and in the sector. We expanded quite significantly our LP base between fund one and fund two. And it's bringing an endowment or a foundation into these investments not just because it's good for the world, but because it's good for their portfolio, it's diversifying of their traditional real assets, it's got an inherently good risk-return profile, that conversation and that conversation happening at investment committees is, I think, really important over time. And so that's kind of a motivating focus of us beyond that we are in an area with the same secular and structural tailwinds exist within asset management in this category that exists within the assets.
0: It's not hard to know at a high level just that the issues of climate change and social equality and things like that are more prevalent in the discussion than they have been. Has that transferred to what you've seen at the investment decision-making board level of these pools of capital?
1: Yes, but it's convenient. Often the boards think about it more and the CIO is left with this question of how do I deal with it? and they end up in sometimes a more complicated position than they might have been. So for someone like us, the politics of it, as it were, is a double-edged sword. There's this question of, are we doing it because it's being demanded or because it's a good investment choice? And those tensions often get in the way of good decision-making instead of enabling it. And so it's been far more interesting to be part of conversations as people moved from, we're not doing this because I think it's concessionary, to now Creating what I would call an alternate assets, like it's a sort of a new private equity category that that we're included, but so is data centers and a couple other things. But it's been hard to bucket because it's not traditional real assets in oil and gas and toll roads. But it's that evolution of thinking that I think is really interesting. But the aggregate pressure is real. And one of the big challenges is how to do it. We've seen people say, we're going to do it internally and just be completely unable to do so. With all due respect to some of the best endowments or investor groups out there, doing it internally is very complicated because you just don't have the expertise. Or you see lots and lots of opportunities that are decently scaled, but low return. And so how you find something that matches your return and your social goals is a complicated ask of particularly small teams that are trying to sort out a lot of moving pieces. And that's only gotten harder in the last six months.
0: The private side that you're attacking, you can at least see it's fairly straightforward in an alignment of what these objectives are and the activities you're doing. You shared earlier a little bit about why you chose to do private markets, but you used to be a public market investor. How do you think it makes sense to move this ball forward relating to the public markets?
1: There's a funny tension between divestment and influence. And the balance of how you vote your proxies or what you buy and don't buy and how that manifests is a complicated piece. Larry Fink hired Brian Deese, who was the point guy on climate in the prior White House and is incredibly cogent and thoughtful on these things. And other places you've seen an implementation and increase in how prominent this thinking is within something like Goldman Sachs. And the big institutions are grappling with it. And it's really at that place that choices can start to be made. There's some nonprofits that have moved to where it's no longer just an asset owner signatory where CalPERS has signed something, but that doesn't translate to the on the ground portfolio manager at Fidelity or wherever. You know, I'm not trying to impugn or comment on any organization, but now there's a, a forum that has these same asset owners engaging directly with the CEOs and saying, look, we own 30% of your cap table. You're not doing this. And that transition has, I think, been really powerful to just get people to start to think about it. And you've seen really big moves. Excel, which is is my personal utility, but they went from being and and are one of the dirtier utilities because they have a lot of coal to committing to an aggressive timeline to clean up. And they're honest about it. We don't know how we're going to get the last 20%. We know how we can get to 80%. But by the time we need to get to 100%, we are going to figure that out too. And that pragmatism and approach is partly driven by These big asset owners saying, you got to have a plan here, people.
0: What do you see as the biggest challenges to continued success in your business?
1: If I go back to our mission, it's saying bring more capital and bring more ideas and bring more competition. And in some ways that makes it harder. But I think the key is this process and economic pathway continues. And so just sort of sticking on it and grinding away is really important. I think there's some complexity to capital still the ability to put together the right mix of capital to really drive and deploy projects over this change is, is complicated by traditional fund structures. We have an investment from Fund One that it's been great and it's grown and it it's five years in, six years in, and suddenly it may have a multi-hundred million dollar equity opportunity at high teens, 20% IRRs, unlevered. Well, we're coming to where we need to be thinking about selling it. And that doesn't really make sense because we've had a fair amount of blood, sweat, and tears in, in building and expanding a management team and, and going through the early lessons of what works and what doesn't. And so we can do what we talked about earlier, which is you know turn around and sell to someone bigger. But I think there's a mismatch between expertise and alignment that continues to evolve. And that's been a question in asset ownership in general. And there have been some attempts to fix that. But when you're doing it in newer categories, it has a second level of difficulty.
0: When you put on your structuring cap, just think of that one example, which let's just say we agree this is an asset that's doing really well and likely will continue to for a time. How have you thought about solving that structural challenge relative to having it in a fund that needs an exit because of the structure of the fund?
1: So you quickly get into things that are complicated between funds and with fiduciary duties. We already have one investment that's in both of our first two funds, but you can always sell from one fund to another or do other things, but that's generally frowned upon and complicated. Our favorite approach is there's a price that solves the problem for us and for our investors. And ideally we can convince someone to show up and pay us that price. And then they're effectively paying for the opportunity. That's sort of bucket one. And and then after that, Many of the structural solutions, evergreen or otherwise, have their own sets of complexities where you end up talking about why you're an evergreen fund instead of talking about what you do and why it's excess return generating. And so it's why we haven't tried to do anything creative on on this front yet. We're trying to run around and tell people you're going to earn what we think of as excess returns and sustainable assets. I had to interrupt one skeptical meeting with, look, this isn't just rainbows and unicorns. And they kind of looked at me like, what are you talking about? Well, and gave her an example of some of the complexity of situations that we're grappling with. We haven't solved it. It's something we're spending the summer trying to think more about.
0: Have you gotten involved at all in any of the broader, either kind of touching on regulatory or maybe more some of the nonprofit work to drive what you're trying to accomplish at the higher level forward?
1: One of the fun things is aligning the work you do as your day job with things you care about. And so some days, am I working with this nonprofit because it's part of my job or because it's part of my interest? But it's one and the same every day. And so we've been involved in attempts to move and protect the U.S. oil exposure, both economic and structurally. It used to be just about foreign oil. It's still about the economic impacts of oil. And no matter what you do, that's driven by reducing our percentage usage in transportation. And so working with big CEOs and generals and admirals to really talk to government about how to do this right is an effective diversifier from a bunch of environmentalists. And so spend time on that, work with where and how markets are innovating with nonprofits and with some of the politics. I think the, the big corporate change and transition discussions are really accelerating to where they matter. And so we're part of some of those as well, where big institutions like I refer to are starting to say, okay, well, how do I actually do this instead of make an announcement that sounds good, but doesn't actually do
0: very much? Where do you draw the line on investing on behalf of others in the fund, and then maybe something you would do philanthropically that might serve the same mission, but doesn't have the same kind of economic return?
1: The good news is those buckets are crystal clear and distinct. You mentioned, you know, stocks and things like that. I actually don't do much of that at all, right? I know what it takes to be good at it, and I don't choose to spend my time doing it. Therefore, it occasionally shows up where it really ties into what we do. You know, So we're, we're doing a take private in Norway. The stock was massively undervalued and completely misunderstood. And I had all kinds of flashbacks to the exact kind of situation that I liked 15 years ago. But within the nonprofit or philanthropic side, capital's not really the solution, right? The leverage comes from policy change and policy drives capital. So to me, at least, either something pays and real capital should do it, or it needs a structure or policy prescription that's different to make it pay. So the idea of subsidized capital or those things, that doesn't strike me as attractive. We see some opportunities where someone has been subsidizing it out of a family office up to $5 million, but you can't scale there. And so it's a very harsh reality for a company that's had a a philanthropic capital partner that hasn't been economic. And then they want twenty, fifty, a hundred million dollars and the harsh reality of what the market says. And it'd be better if they just had to figure it out from step one.
0: All right, Ruben, before I let you go, let's turn to some closing questions, which I know you, you know are coming. So what's your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? I moved to Colorado from Boston in part because I, I love to ski Little did I know I would
1: become a hockey chauffeur on the weekends instead for my kids. But you know I still love to get out in the, into the mountains as much as
0: I can. What's your biggest pet peeve?
1: So the idea that we're just waiting for an oil supermajor to solve this climate problem. This is a group of companies that have had terrible returns on capital. They earned you know eight percent ROEs last year. This year is going to be worse. Exxon's down forty percent in the last five years. Why are we waiting for them to be the bellwether that determines whether you know kind of returns and opportunity are are here in this sector.
0: Sounds like similar to any investment pet peeve, but any other uh, broad investment pet peeves?
1: I thought that would count for both. Probably does. <laughs> it's an extension of the same, which is less the case now, but, you know, oh, aren't you facing a lot of regulatory risk when everything in electricity is regulated? And the same questioner owns a public stock that's an oil driller in Kazakhstan. And there's a lot of regulatory risk there too. So, we used to face a disproportionate bias of risk because it was easy to dismiss the sector on that basis.
0: What do you do for self-growth?
1: So the explosion of podcasts has actually been amazing because you can get outside and you can go for a walk for a half an hour. And you know, the other day there was a conversation between Steve Kerr, Pete Carroll, and Michael Lewis, right? Like You don't get to hear the three of them chat about things in a half an hour while also getting fit and getting your dose of vitamin D.
0: What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you?
1: So my parents were teachers. And so that just brought forward the idea of education and constantly trying to learn and opening up the ideas of the power of a book and where you can go from there.
0: Okay, last one. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life?
1: My wife and I figured this one out pretty quickly after we had kids. And it's that you don't realize just how little sleep you can get by on, nor do you realize just how much you should treasure your sleep. So either sleep way more or sleep way less when you're younger.
0: (laughs) Great, Ruben, thanks so much.
1: Thanks so much, Ted.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found a nugget or two to take away and apply in your investing and your life. If you'd like what you heard, please tell a friend and maybe even write a review on iTunes. You'll help others discover the show and I thank you for it. Have a good one and see you next time.
1: This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. All opinions expressed by guests on the show are solely their own opinion and do not necessarily reflect those of their firm. Managers appearance on the show does not constitute an endorsement or investment recommendation by Ted or Capital Alligators.